Hello from Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Welcome back to State of the Vote. Every Tuesday, we're going to break down what you need to know about the movement in the congressional races that will determine who controls the House and Senate and will set the foundation for power dynamics leading up to the presidential election in 2024. We have partnered with our friends at Decision Desk HQ, who are among the most trusted experts in measuring and modeling public opinion and election outcomes. They are the election mathletes behind major outlets like The Economist, BuzzFeed News, Vox Media, Insider, and The New York Times for election night results and final calls on races. As Mike Madrid and I have talked about on this show at length, the most important aspect of polls is movement. So from now through election day, each week, the DDHQ team is going to walk us through where the biggest movers are and what races and why that movement is happening. If you want to follow along, decisiondeskhq.com is where you can find their House and Senate elections models, which update daily. And today I'm joined by two members of the DDHQ team. First, Scott Tranter. He's an investor and advisor to Decision Desk HQ and an adjunct professor at American University, where he teaches quantitative and qualitative research in the School of Communication. He's also a practitioner, is what we call him in the business, meaning he's been responsible for data that drives high stakes campaign decisions in real life. Scott, it's great to see you again. Thanks for having me. We are also joined by Kyle Williams. Kyle was one of the lead data scientists behind Decision Desk HQ's record-setting forecasting model for Congress and the Electoral College in 2020. He also holds a PhD in theoretical physics from the University of Illinois. Kyle, welcome back. Thanks again for making the time. Thank you so much. All right. So let's talk about the environment first. Last week, we gave an overview of the election environment. Have you seen any major changes over the last week? So I think I would say over the past week or so, the overall aggregate environment hasn't changed a whole, whole lot. I think when we spoke last week, we gave Democrats something like a 62% chance of of retaining 50-50 control of the Senate. This week, we give them something like a 63% chance of retaining 50-50 control of the Senate. So in the Senate specifically, we haven't seen a huge aggregate movement in terms of which party is likely to retain control of the chamber. The story in the House overall, again, at a high level, is similar, that we still, uh, right now, our forecast gives uh, Republicans uh, coming in at something like 229 seats to 226 seats for the Democrats, giving them a majority of 20 seats, give or take. Last time we spoke, uh, Republicans were at 228. So the overall top-level numbers that we expect for Democrats and Republicans in both chambers haven't changed a whole lot. Now, as we'll get into, there have been some changes in underlying individual races, but that's that top-level sense of how many seats are Republicans and Democrats going to get in each chamber hasn't shifted a whole, whole lot over the past seven days. Right. And we're going to get into a couple of those very interesting races in a minute. Scott, how has the generic ballot shifted in the last week? Is it, and it, has it been meaningful? Uh, you know what? It's funny. In the last week, it has not been super meaningful. But it, in fact, as we're recording now, there's a bunch of new generic ballot polls that came out this morning that'll be incorporated into the model. You'll probably see the model update later today and tomorrow. Um, we're seeing some shifts there again towards Republicans. Um, very slight. I mean, we're talking when I say slight quarter to a half a point because we average these things out. Um, but this is the this is the shift that we would all expect to see after Labor Day. Um, I think we talked about on the last show is after Labor Day, we have these polls go from registered voters to likely voters. Um, so this is the shift we would like to see, you know, or we would have liked to have seen or had expected to see uh, back in Labor Day. Now, 
today is a big day. Um, you know, we're, we're right in the middle of reporting season, right? Mm-hmm. So all the people who have really good fundraising numbers are reporting them now. All the people who don't have good fundraising numbers are waiting until October 15th. So it'll be interesting to see if this polling trend continues for the Republicans and if they can, you know, maintain their fundraising, um, not maintain, if they can make up some of their fundraising uh, 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 lagging from last reporting period. And how do the current numbers compare to what we saw in early June pre-Dobbs decision? Um, the generic ballot has stayed roughly the same. I mean, it's trended a little bit more towards Democrats um, than it was, but there's a combination of things. Could be Dobbs, could be Ukraine, could be Inflation Reduction Act, could be a whole bunch of other things. Um, you know, th- th- this um, uh, hurricane will have some some local regionalized issues in Florida. There's a lot of contested House races down there. There's contested Senate race, those types of things. And so we've seen the, the generic ballot um, move a little bit more towards Democrats since since Dobbs, if that's the point we want to use. Um, and then again, like I said this morning, it looks like it's inching back towards Republicans. I think that the big takeaway is, is from at least as the average goes, right? There's been some polls with the Democrats up in the generic ballot and vice versa. But as far as the average goes, the Republicans have been in the lead from start to finish. And that should be the trend takeaway. Let's take a look at the Senate. So Kyle, you want to give us an overview of how the Senate races have shifted over the last week? And then um, and then we'll dig into Pennsylvania. That's the one I really want to uh, understand what's happening there. So give us a lay of the land. Sure. Just uh, sort of setting the table, the marquee Senate races this year have not changed. So we're talking about Pennsylvania. We're talking about Nevada. We're talking about Georgia. We're talking about Arizona. So this week, we saw Pennsylvania shift in our model from a lean D race, a race where we saw the Democratic nominee, John Fetterman, with an advantage. Uh, He shifted somewhat down in our forecast this week. Uh, So that race now falls in the toss-up range, that we see that race as you know, not quite a coin flip, maybe, uh, but Fetterman having only a very, very narrow advantage. Similarly, sort of on the opposite side of the spectrum, in Arizona, we shifted Arizona Senate from a lean D race to a likely D race, that the model now sees that uh, the Democratic incumbent, Mark Kelly, has a significant advantage against his Republican opponent, uh, Blake Masters. Now, granted, it's not a safety, it's not a solid D race that uh, uh, Blake Masters still has a chance, but the model now sees by looking at the fundamentals and especially looking over the past week at some of the polling that's come in, that Mark Kelly has a clear advantage in his race against Blake Masters in Arizona. Scott, can you walk us through some of the dynamics in the state in Pennsylvania that might be contributing to this uh, tightening, favoring Oz? Sure. I mean, look, and this is a little bit more qualitative than quantitative. We've had some polls that show the tightening, which is why we're talking about it today. Um, you know, uh, Oz and, and Fetterman have a, a have a debate coming up. It's, it's going to be on News Nation, I believe, which is where you can watch it nationally if you don't if you don't watch it in uh, Pennsylvania. But that's big because you know Oz has been saying as a doctor, hey, you know, is Fetterman fully recovered from his his incident earlier this year? And Fetterman has uh, has not been on the trail as we might expect him to. And so I think that message that that Oz has been pushing in has probably been permeating throughout. We see it in the TV ads. We see it in, in the messaging. On the flip side, you know, Oz has not done himself any favors by uh, appearing to be from New Jersey. Mm-hmm. I say that with in jest, but, you know, that is the Fetterman angle. Um, you know, this race is tightening in the sense that I think both these guys, both these candidates, 
candidates have some serious flaws. Fetterman on the health side, Oz on the on the electability side. Um, and they're about to go into a debate and people are just saying, OK, which one are we going to choose here? Mm-hmm. So I think that's why we're seeing the tightening, at least from that. Also, Pennsylvania is a battleground state. I mean, look, look what happened in 2020. Look where it was in 2016. Um, you know, coming into this from a generic standpoint before Oz and Fetterman were even on it, we would have expected the Republican um, to be favored here. Um, but it is a pure toss up. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's where it's going to be most interesting down the stretch. Before we leave the Senate, is there anything else, any other, uh, races worth calling out that are interesting? Uh, so I mentioned, uh, again, just going back to Arizona for a second that I know at the beginning of this cycle, everyone, certainly myself included, looked at what happened in Arizona in 2020. Mark Kelly just, uh, barely beat Martha McSally by a narrower margin than myself and a lot of other people expected that year that going into 2020, we thought Mark Kelly was going to pretty easily defeat Martha McSally and he only won by uh, two or three points, I think. So going into this year, I thought, oh, Arizona's certainly going to be one of the most competitive states, that Arizona's a state that's only extremely recently become competitive for, for Democrats even. So I thought heading into this year, uh, by the time we got to September, October, we would th- we would see Mark Kelly in a lot of trouble. But if anything, we've seen it go in the, the other direction, that we've seen some of the problems around Blake Masters fundraising, and we see sort of his electability problems reflected in, in polling. So if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have thought we would have Arizona in the same bucket as Georgia, for example, which looks razor thin. But instead, we sort of see Mark Kelly building a real advantage against against Blake Masters. And I think that's notable. I'd like to mention Nevada. I know we talked about it a little last time, but Nevada is still Tell me about my home state. Yeah, yeah. It is it is still fifty I mean, we have it at Republicans forty nine point three, Democrats fifty point seven. That is the definition of, you know, toss up again. Um, you know, I am that is the FEC report I'm looking at probably top two, that mm-hmm. one in Val Demings and Marco Rubio, at least on the Senate side. Um, because of how close um Nevada is, I think the money is going to make a difference. Um, that is also, I know it's a big topic um with you, Ron. There's a lot of Hispanic vote. Um, there's a lot of union vote, there's a lot of crossover vote. Nevada has historically been a battleground state, although it's been consistently democratic as of late. And so it'll be interesting to see if some of those Hispanic games the Republicans have had show up here. Um, you know, Laxalt, Laxalt is a known quantity and, and relatively well-liked, and Cortez Mastro is is also a known quantity incumbent senator. So I think the fundraising, the polling, I mean, that one, and especially given how Nevada counts votes, that could be one that, you know, you don't predict recounts, but if I had to, you know, guess, that one will probably be close, has a more probability of being a recount than, say, Kansas. <laughs> It's very tight, and Laxalt, you know, has a has a has a slight advantage in that he may be under, um, you know, he may be he may be falsely handicapped, right? Because this is going to come down to Washoe County, and they, they, you know, the votes come in from rural Nevada and Washoe County later than they do down in Southern California, and so, uh, yeah, I could I could see that happening. Since we last spoke, let's turn to the House. Since we last spoke, there was a significant shift in the Arizona second congressional race. That's uh, that's Tucson for everybody keeping track at home. It's gone from a toss-up to a lean R. Uh, what movement have you seen there, Kyle? When we think about the House, just stepping back from Arizona too for a second, the vast majority of House races don't get any polling at all. That when we look at the House overall, we're a lot more reliant on things like the generic ballot, things like the underlying demographics for a particular state. 
And different districts are uh, respond more or less to overall shifts in the generic ballot. So as Scott indicated, we've seen the generic ballot move more toward Republicans over the past week or so. And this is one of those districts that we've seen that reflected in specifically that Arizona, too. So Tom O'Halloran, he represents a district that uh, has always been has been difficult for, for Democrats for a while. And he just barely, uh, barely, narrow, barely held on to it by two or three points, I think, in 2020. I think people were surprised that it was as close as it was in 2020, given that Biden and actually won the state. I think if you told people that Democrats were only winning Arizona two by two or three points in 2020, they would have been surprised that Biden was carrying it. But that was what happened. So this is a place that we've seen movement away from Democrats more broadly, and his district became more Republican in redistricting. Uh, so we've seen uh, the model respond to the generic ballot becoming more Republican. And we've seen uh, this because the model knows this is a district that's been moving quickly, that's pretty elastic. The model responded to that. And we see Tom O'Halloran is now in a, a race uh, that's uh, we look at as, as lean R and he's very much in the fight of his life. Yeah. And you mentioned there's not a lot of polling going to congressional, uh, congressional races, congressional districts. Mostly the polling that's available is private. It's internal. The campaigns are paying for it themselves or you're a big national committee. And you're not necessarily sharing yeah, it's it. It's really tough to even do a poll in, in a house race. It's right. hard to get enough sample even because it's such a small yeah. area. Yeah. Very, very difficult to poll. So it's unusual to see. Um, the only house seat on your biggest movers list that's not held by a Democrat right now is Michigan third. It's a toss up. Uh, but it's trending toward the Republican candidate, John Gibbs. Can you talk about what's moving in that yeah, race? So this is uh, the district that is currently for, I guess, the next couple months represented by by Pete Meyer, who was one of the Republicans who, who supported impeachment in the House. And he lost his primary to John uh, John Gibbs, uh, who's sort of a more uh, Trump, Trump world uh, aligned candidate. And uh, I think people expected going, and this is a district that became actually more Democratic in redistricting. So this is another example of a place where the model sort of hearing uh, the generic ballot shifting, that the model sees that this is a place that is sort of suburban, uh, you know, quite white, but quite highly educated. This is exactly the kind of place that's been moving away from Trump uh, sort of aligned Republicans over the past 10 years or so and moving toward Democrats. So even though this is an area you could probably describe as ancestrally Republican, you know, this is literally where Gerald Ford was from. This was Gerald Ford's congressional district, I think. This is exactly the kind of place that uh, has been moving toward Democrats. And so a combination of generic ballot shifts combined with the underlying demographics of the district. The model looked at this and has responded and said, well, this is a place that, uh, you know, is going to be challenging for Republicans going forward. I was going to say, this is this is a good one to bring up. I'm yeah. glad we're talking about it. So if you look at the data that our model's looking at on this one, there is no polling. So the, the, there's no polling that, other than the generic ballot polling, but there's no, no congressional district specific polling, which in, if this race were in 2018, we probably have half a dozen polls already to read off. We don't have that in this case. All we have is a quarterly report from July that shows John Gibbs with $124,000 on hand and Hillary Shulton, the Democrat, with $901,000. Um, the model looks at the district breakup and says, hey, it's a partisan lean D plus two previously held by Republicans. So the model says, OK, it's a 61 percent chance for a Republican, which is the definite. Again, it's a toss up, r- roughly a coin flip. Um, there are a lot of qualitative people. I'm sure there's qualitative people on Twitter who also read this. They're like, this race isn't 61% Republican. I'm going to bet on Shulton, all those types of things. They very, very well may be right. It should be 61% damn, 38% Republican, whatever it may be. Um, but again, we've got to look at the fundamentals here and we, we, we see the race getting closer and you'll see the model when it picks up the fundraising here. If John Gibbs gets killed in fundraising, which is entirely possible, it's entirely possible. He outraises her too. We'll see it there. And then there'll probably be some late polling.
polling. But this is a this is a perfect example of redistricting, lack of polling. We have to go with the fundamentals, um, and the model is being relatively conservative here. Whereas if you're just an armchair political observer, you're like, no, 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 this is this is going to be this John Gibbs guy. He's a joke. He's not raising any money. Well, again. It's Michigan. It's a Republican district. I understand what redistricting did. The model gets to be cool and calm with the data it has. Interesting. Yeah, we should remind people this is the you know Michigan third is is one of the districts where Democrats spent money in the Republican primary. They spent about a half yeah. million dollars on TV ads calling Gibbs too conservative in his race against Peter Meyer. Peter Meyer, of course, is one of the ten House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump for trying to steal an election. He stood up to his own party and. Uh, and did the right thing. Gibbs is a Trump-endorsed election denier, right, uh, who has a better than 60% chance of winning. So, Scott, I'm just curious how you see that strategy of, of pushing for the extremist Republican and primary candidates playing out for Democrats so far this cycle. Um, I think it's mixed. I personally, my personal opinion is I don't really like it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't like any election deniers. I don't like any of that stuff. Um, and so if you're Democrats and that's going to be your angle in terms of getting people to, uh, you know, saying, Hey, I don't want to elect those people, then don't push them in the primary because you want to beat them in the general. Um, I I think that's a little disingenuous. There's, there's my little personal soapbox, but I think it's, it's mixed, right? Like, if it, they did it with John Gibbs, if John Gibbs ends up losing if this John fall, Gibbs ends up winning, though. I mean, if it's a toss yeah. up and he's got, you know, 60 percent chance, like, man. yeah, no, and I, I just looked at it. Cook Political and, and Amy Walter and the team over there are very good. They got it lean Democratic. And, and so I understand why they have it that way. But, you know, sometimes you get sometimes you don't get what you wish for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and sometimes you get what you wish Careful for. Careful what so, you ask for. Yeah. yeah, it's it's one of those things. And so I I, I think. It, the record is mixed, right? If a John Gibbs gets all the way through this fall, I, I think you're going to hear what I just said about the Democratic strategy and the Republic and the primaries really come to a head. Mm-hmm. If John Gibbs doesn't win, then they're going to look like geniuses. But yeah. I think we're going to see a mixed record here. I think you know a couple will get through and a couple won't. I also maybe it's too early to you know I, I don't ever want to start thinking about 2024 until we're past November. Yep. But if you want to sure. start thinking about this from the perspective of well, how does the pendulum swing back in 2024? Right. If Republicans right. do win Michigan three this year, this is exactly the kind of seat that in a presidential year when Ron. DeSantis or Donald Trump or whoever, whoever it ends up being is on the ballot. This district is quite unlikely, given the way it's been trending, to support Donald Trump or sort of a Trump-aligned candidate in 2024. And it's going to be very, very difficult for John Gibbs to hold on in that environment while that district is voting against Trump. So this is to That's say, this point. is exactly the kind of district that if Republicans are able to flip it in a midterm, it is going to be knife's edge for them to hold on to it in 2024. Okay, there's been a lot of talk about the youth vote so far this cycle. It's got a lot of attention after uh, Pat Ryan won the special election in New York's 19th. Um, And I just want to sort of pose a general question to you both, given how reliant Democratic wins are on youth turnout. What level of turnout do you expect to see this year? Uh, I know it's difficult to gauge turnout, like especially with the model, everything comes down to turnout, right? Um, And as we see sort of greater realignment along educational lines and more working class voters of color move toward the Republican Party, how will that impact the importance of the younger voter turnout for Democrats? 
<laughs> I'll let you go first, Kyle. So I'm gonna <laughs> as a younger voter. <laughs> so I'm gonna answer this question in what's probably a frustrating way. So we hear people talk all the time about the youth vote, the importance of the youth vote, and I understand where that uh, impetus comes from, or where that uh, that sort of uh, desire to talk about that comes from. But the reality is, is that the electorate is very, very old. It almost can't be emphasized enough how old the electorate is. So all of these discussions about youth mobilization, how is the young vote going to go, how are people who are newly registering at age 18 to vote, like this stuff is very marginal. The average voter is in their 60s, 70s in, in a lot of places. That, And if you think about it from turnout, from a turnout breakdown perspective, voters younger than 35, I think in a typical midterm, their turnout is usually less than 50%. I'm not even, I think in 2014, which was particularly bad, youth turnout may have been like sub 30%. Uh, the people who are really voting in these midterm elections typically are very Old are much older than average people. So I'm not saying the youth vote has no value or no meaning, but the people who are determining who wins an election, especially in a midterm year, which are lower turnout than presidential years, are not young people. It's middle-aged and older people. Yeah, well, one stat I like to put in perspective just with the youth vote, because this is a topic every election cycle. We mm-hmm. get asked, okay, is this the one that's going to spur, you know, spur the youth vote? You know, this year it's the it's the Roe versus Wade female, young female vote, all those types of things. Will we see an uptick? Sure. Will we see an uptick across the board? Maybe. Will we see an uptick in certain districts? Absolutely. Um, but let's put it into perspective. The average age of a, of, of a general election voter Man, I'm going to get it wrong, but I'm going to be generally correct. It's in the mid mid to late 40s. In the primaries, it's in the early to mid 50s. And so we would have to see the youth vote triple before it starts making a significant impact on these five and 10 point races, right? It, it, is it going to play a factor in a race by one point? Yeah, four or 5,000 votes might matter. Um, those types of things, you know, and that's where the youth vote can really move it. But we, we, we've been talking about this for as long as I've been doing elections and I have yet to see the youth vote, you know, and, and let's talk about what we're measuring here. There's eligible youth voters, there's registered youth voters, and then there's ones who show up. I think the, of the eligible youth voters who show up in an off year, it's somewhere around 20, 25%, right? Like, so that means that three of four youth voters are watching those MTV things or they're not watching MTV anymore. They're watching these get out the vote things. And they're like, yeah, not, not, not for me. Right. So the vast majority of them are still saying no. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is a long way of saying the youth vote's going to go up a little bit, but I, I, I will be surprised, but don't I'm, hang I'm your hat on, on, on yeah. like them saving the day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and look, you can have me on in, 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 in April of next year when we get the voter files back <laughs> and the youth vote explodes to 40%. Um, but I, I gotta, I'm that one. I'll be surprised on. I don't see you'll, I don't think you'll see me predicting that one. I will be late on that one. <laughs> Let's see how it goes. All yeah. right. Youth turnout is about oh, 65%. I'll come back on the podcast. I'll eat a boiled leather shoe. <laughs> <laughs> Before we uh, check out here, there's one other uh, question I have for you, which is last week Politico published an article headline, Pollsters Fear They're Blowing It Again in 2022. Nate Cohn <laughs> from The Times wrote a piece earlier in September showing that Democrats were outperforming in 2022 polls right now in the same places that they overperformed in polls in 2016 and 2020. So he's got this interesting scatter plot graph that you can take a look at it. And it's it's actually stunning. All the same places they're overperforming again. And I just want to put it to you. Uh, are pollsters getting it wrong again? Are Democrats artificially over outperforming in these polls in the same places again, or have the problems been fixed? What do you think, Kyle? So 
like, you have to think about this holistically, right? So did polls have problems in 2016? Absolutely. Did polls have problems in 2020? Absolutely. Were polls better in 2018, a year when Donald Trump was notably not on the ballot? Yes. But we're talking about an N equals three sample size. I think there's this strong temptation to look at this and be like, well, there's something uniquely bad about polling quality when Donald Trump is not on the ballot. And ergo, maybe they will be better this year. I'd like to push back against that because right now we see polling in places like Ohio that seems to suggest that Tim Ryan has a really strong chance of defeating Republican J.D. Vance in the Ohio Senate race, which I think sort of pushes back against the fundamentals of what we might expect, that if you just look at the fundamentals of a state like Ohio, a state that um, Donald Trump not only won twice, but won surprisingly easily twice, a state that is sort of lower educated on average, a state that's quite white, you would look at those things and be like, well, these polling numbers, they don't seem to like match up to what one might expect. So the lame but quantitative like math lead answer is, well, you have to look at these things together. That if you look at the state from a fundamentals perspective, yes, Tim Ryan is has a strong, strong uphill battle. But based on these polling numbers, that's one data point that we can look at in combination with everything else that seem to suggest that, well, even though uh, J.D. Vance is probably going to win, they suggest that he's maybe going to win by less than we might expect for a Republican in this situation. So again, the short answer is one data point among others. Will polls be wrong in the same way again? That's impossible to say in advance, but you have to think about it in conjunction with everything else. Scott, anything else there? Because I'm looking at this scatter plot. It's Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Florida, Ohio. It's all the most important places. All the most important places are where Democrats uh, overperformed or, you know, where they were wrong, essentially, in 2018, 2020. So. Well, it's a little bit like that. What's that picture I see in the air all the time of that of that that airplane that comes back and it's got all the bullet holes? <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, we should do it this way, right? Like, that's where all the polling is, right? Like, we don't know if we get it wrong in Idaho. Yeah. There's not a lot of polling in Idaho. <laughs> um, same thing with California. California is one of those ones that's a little weird. But what I would say is, you know, there was, I think, G. Elliott Morris was tweeting about it a week ago or so where he's like, okay, if I took the polling errors from 2020 and I applied them to, you know, the to, to, to the, the polls we have now, what would the, some of the Senate races look like and a little bit on the House races? And it and it shows, you know, obviously better for the Republicans. Uh, that's not a bad mental exercise or thought experiment to do is because as a pollster, we know polls will be wrong. They're not going to be accurate. We just don't know what direction they're going to be wrong. We can speculate which way they're going to be wrong. And I think if you polled all the pollsters, I think all the pollsters would say, look, we know we're going to be wrong. And I think we're going to be directionally wrong in detriment to the Republicans. The only question is, is it a half a point or is it five points? In the case of Wisconsin, I believe there was a poll that came out a week before 2020 that Joe Biden up 17. That one's pretty bad. Or, you know, the the main Senate race that had Sarah Gideon up 10. You know, mm-hmm. those, are, those are some egregious errors. I don't know that we're going to see like a, a, a minus 10 miss. That's, that's you know, that's that's relatively rare while not impossible. Um, but yeah, I think we're going to see some polling errors here. I think the, the, the way I look at it, the very unofficial way to look at it is, look, we got it now that the Republicans at 229 seats. We got it 50-50 for the Republicans on um, – uh, I'm sorry, 50-50 Senate split for for the Democrats on the Senate, which gives them a roughly a mid-60s chance of keeping it. You know, I, I, if I were to mentally adjust, I don't know, if if we had perfect knowledge in all the polling, we're probably much closer to 50-55% chance for the Democrats in the Senate, and the Republicans are probably north of 230 seats. Um, you know, that would be the way you would mentally do it if you said, okay, well, let's assume there's a polling error like there was in 16 or 20. 
Um, but then again, we can do this exercise all day long and I can make really good arguments to go the other way too. But if you're, <laughs> if you're on the other side of this, that is, if you're on a campaign and you're reading this data and you're trying to make decisions about the final stretch, the resources you're going to spend, what you're going to do with your candidate, you're definitely thinking about this with a handicap. You're definitely yes. thinking like, okay, yeah. we're just going to assume we're baking in that the democratic, who, whoever it is, is probably overperforming by a couple of points. Like, yeah. and we're going to, yeah, yeah if, we're going to, if you're a practitioner, you're most don't look at the polls. You know why? It's like looking at the scoreboard. Yeah before the game's over yep. you put as many points up on the board as you can yep you assume you're always behind even when you're 10 points up you got to put the points on the board so you got to be most efficient with it um you know you look at the, you look at the polling because you want to do it but if you're if you if you're tim ryan and you think you're five points up right now and you're trying to make decisions assuming you're five points ahead that's probably not a smart thing to do mm-hmm. you should you should make decisions as if you're 10 both him and jd van should make decisions based as if they're 10 points down both of them <laughs> Perfect. All right, guys. Good checking in with you. DecisionDeskHQ.com is where you can check the model, which updates daily and follow along with us. We'll talk to you next week. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.